Good morning, everyone. <laughs> My name is Paul, and I serve as one of the pastors at First City. I want to begin this morning with a question. This is a really important question. If someone were to ask you, who is Jesus? How would you respond? What would be important for you to express? So an aspect of this exercise is certainly intellectual. Thinking about what from the life of Christ stands out. But more than intellectual, there are some emotional implications. So I have a particular supervisor in, in my past. If you were to ask me, who is she? I would say she's a mentor. She's a great teacher. Now, who she is is far more than that. Others would describe her differently, but my response would be connected to feelings of warmth and gratitude. If you were to ask me about others, who is he or who is she, depending on who the person is, my mind might be drawn to other things. He's kind of bossy. She's the one who knows a lot. I won't name any names. Different emotions connected with those responses. Who is Jesus? What emotions surface as you consider how you'd respond? If you identify who he is based on what he did for you, how he died for your sins and rose from the dead, you probably feel appreciation and gratitude. If you identify who he is based on how you relate to Jesus, him being your Lord or him being the one you worship and obey, you might feel reverence and awe. Or maybe you feel burden and obligation, depending on how you relate to those words. If you identify Jesus as distant, you probably feel apathy or abandoned. Who is Jesus? And as you consider your response, what emotions come to the surface? If you've been with us in recent weeks, you know we're spending time exploring an ancient statement of the faith professed by Christians throughout the globe called the Apostles' Creed. We're doing this to better understand the core doctrines of the Christian faith. And as we've reflected on the creed, you've likely noticed that it's broken up into three sections, each focusing on one person of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're in that second section, which happens to be the largest, and we're considering the person of Jesus. Now, last week, we jumped ahead a bit to coordinate schedules with our guest preacher, and we examined what the creed means when it says, Jesus ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. This week, we're backing up to explore how it, how it begins. And you may notice, before the creed says anything about what Jesus did, how he suffered and died and rose from the dead, it clarifies, who is Jesus? What type of person is he? Where did he come from? The flow of the creed is communicating it is critical to view what Jesus did in light of who he is. Which just makes sense. 
If everyone were to relate to me the way that supervisor did, if they started to mentor me and they weren't my supervisor, that's when that person would fall into that category. He's kind of bossy. Or she knows a lot. She talks a lot. So we're focusing on the words, I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, our Lord, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. In using this language, the creed affirms Jesus is a high and heavenly Lord, worthy of awe and reverence and worship. He is the only Son of God, our Lord. And in affirming that Jesus didn't remain in the, in the heavens, that he descended down into creation, being born of the Virgin Mary, more than a Lord, he's a liberator. He's not distant. Such an understanding of Jesus leads us to rejoice. The creed declaring that there was a high and holy Lord who came down to dwell with his people is a remarkable story. So let's spend time reflecting on how the creed answers the question, who is Jesus, the high and heavenly Lord who came down to low places. If you recognize a reference to a song by Garth Brooks, hold on, we'll get there. In the meantime, if you have a Bible or Bible app, open it up to the passage read earlier, the book of Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In that passage, the Apostle Paul is telling his audience, who is Jesus? And he is identifying Christ as a high and heavenly Lord, and how this high and heavenly Lord came down to dwell with people like you and I. I want to make some observations about who is Jesus connected to that passage, and then, con and then consider some implications. Let me read that passage again, beginning with verses 1 and 2. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So Paul is writing to the church in Rome. He's introducing himself. He's clarifying who he is and the message he represents. And before Paul gets into a general greeting, which happens in verse 7, it seems that he is so caught up in sharing the message of the gospel that he can't help himself. He's got to dive right in. He says the, the message he represents, it is not a new message. It's actually the fulfillment of an old one. The gospel of God is something that you can read about in the Hebrew scriptures. It was promised through his prophets. So this means when you read the Old Testament, you will see how there are promises of salvation and deliverance and rescue pointing to the person of Christ and the works of Christ. So after laying that initial foundation, Paul moves on to introduce Jesus. As he does, what stands out? Who is Jesus? What does he want his hearers to know? Let's continue in verse 3. This is what Paul says, Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a descendant of David, according to the flesh, 
was appointed to be the powerful Son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. So Paul is using words and phrases to emphasize this high and heavenly status of Jesus. He's God's Son. In using this language, he is describing not how, not how we relate to Jesus, but how God relates to him. The Bible declares in Christ that we are all sons of God. But Paul here is emphasizing singular status, which means Jesus is not one son among many. He is the one and only. There is a, there is a relationship that he experiences and has experienced that will not be characteristic of anyone else who has walked or will walk on the earth. Paul then identifies Jesus with the word Christ. Now, Christ is not a last name. Christ comes from the term Christos, which is a Greek word, anointed royal figure or the chosen one. From the time his earthly life began, Jesus was declared to be the Christ, set apart as God's son to carry out God's promises of rescue and deliverance, to fulfill God's eternal reign on earth. The name Christos points to his eternal royal status. So the creed and the, the, the Christian standard Bible here include the phrase, our Lord. Christos is not describing how God relates to Jesus, but how God's people relate to Jesus. He is our Lord. He is the one we submit to. He is the one we worship. Now verse 4, I'm skipping over a couple phrases that we'll come back to in a moment, affirms a connection between what Christ did and who he is. What he did didn't make him God's son, but... Him being raised from the dead validated his high and heavenly status. It was proof of his divine nature. So in describing Jesus as a high and heavenly Lord, Paul is identifying that he is worthy of awe and reverence and respect. Now if we're honest, as we relate to rulers and nobility, people of majestic status and high distinction, this is something that is often missing in American culture. If you've seen the musical Hamilton, think of the way King George is portrayed as whiny and pouty. Think of the ways we are cynical about leaders in the community. We often ridicule such individuals. We villainize those with greater status and greater wealth. In many ways, we reject things associated with high society. Think of lyrics, here it is, from one of our favorite songs by Garth Brooks. Yeah, I'm not big on social graces. Think I'll slip on down to the oasis. So I've got friends in low places. Yeah, I've got friends in low places. It's a song with language that glorifies rejecting and rebelling against things associated with what we consider to be elite. As a broader culture, we seem to be missing reverence and respect. What do we expect from a nation birthed out of rebellion against the king? So this lack of reverence and, and respect, it bleeds into how we relate to God, 
how we relate to Jesus. Here's A.W. Tozer in his book, Knowledge of the Holy. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted, substituted for it one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. This low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils among us. A whole new philosophy of the Christian life has resulted from this one basic error in our religious thinking. With our loss of the sense of majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of the divine presence. Tozer is reflecting on how we relate to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, but we could certainly see how his words are indicative of how we relate to Jesus. Who is Jesus? We struggle to affirm his high and heavenly status. In doing so, we come to see Jesus as far less significant than he truly is. And we lack reverence and awe. And in so doing, the good news of the gospel, it is undermined and distorted. When we profess, I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, our Lord, we affirm and embrace a disposition of awe and reverence. We reject a low view of Christ. We reject a view that Jesus is simply our buddy or our friend. He is the God of the universe. He is our master, the person we submit to. We do not believe we are our own Lord. When we confess Jesus is our Lord, we acknowledge Jesus is who we follow and who we surrender to and submit to. He holds a higher status in our life, in our mind, and in our hearts than any celebrity or any political figure or any member of your family, or that special someone in your life. Fame, nor fear, nor fortune, none of those are your lords. And they are lords to many. Jesus is your Lord. As Paul begins to share his excitement about the good news of the gospel, he emphasizes Jesus is a high and heavenly Lord, one worthy of worship and reverence and awe. If we miss this, if we do not understand this aspect of who Jesus is, what comes next will be shallow and wrong. We will miss how remarkable the good news of a heavenly Lord coming down to dwell in low places is. So let's get to Jesus coming down to low places. Who is Jesus? Paul now identifies him as a descendant of David. Now this is certainly a reference to royalty, something else that validates that Jesus is the Christ, that he has royal blood flowing through his veins. This is also a reference to the Old Testament where promises of rescue and God's reign would be fulfilled by a descendant of David, but it also means Jesus has human ancestors. In addition to Jesus having a heavenly father, he has an earthly mother. 
Paul continues saying Jesus came according to the flesh. This means Jesus was born. He was conceived in the womb of a mother. He did not just show up outside of it. His mother went through the pains of childbirth, and so he experienced what it means to mature, to learn to walk, to learn to talk, to go through puberty, to develop physical strength and mental maturity, and even to have his body aged. Some of you may need to hear, there is nothing sinful about having a body that is breaking down and decaying. Paul here is referencing something theologians refer to as the incarnation. How the God of the universe came to dwell in a human body. This is something miraculous, something sensational, something supernatural. It's extraordinary. Paul's comments here in Romans mention this, but it is explained in greater detail elsewhere in the scriptures. Let's look at the Gospel of Matthew. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. In describing the incarnation, Matthew is describing something supernatural, how God came to dwell in physical flesh. A woman became pregnant before she came together with her husband, What was conceived in her was from the Holy Spirit. This means what is supernatural entered into the natural world. The life of the divine entered into a human body. Something that created the laws of physics and space and time inhabited a human body that obeyed the laws of physics and space and time. The creator entered the woman of a womb he created. If there was ever a message in the universe worthy of a mic drop, this was it. I was listening to a a recent debate between scientists Francis Collins and Richard Dawkins on whether or not science and the Christian faith could coexist. Francis Collins, who is a world-renowned geneticist and a Christian, was making the point absolutely they could. A belief in a God who created an ordered universe should lead us to understand conclusions rooted in the scientific method. Richard Dawkins, on the other hand, who has written many books describing how faith in a divine being is a hoax, was saying they could not. Now what was interesting, Dawkins acknowledged, hey, arguments of how the universe functions 
could lead someone like him to be a deist. Someone who would believe in a higher being. Now, he made it clear he was not a deist. But then you have this whole business about Jesus and a virgin birth, a God who enters creation and violates natural law. That makes zero sense. So the creed in affirming Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, is affirming something incredible and extraordinary. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God with us. Jesus is a high and heavenly Lord who came to dwell with his people in low places. This is good news. And it's not just that the incarnation is incredible. It's a game changer in how we relate to God which should shape the emotions we experience as we consider who Jesus is. Here's how Michael Reeves, Professor Michael Reeves, puts it in his book, Rejoicing in Christ. The one on high became low. The creator became a creature. The one high priest trembled to approach, was there in the flesh, now with and alongside his people forever. And so more than revere him as a distant Lord, God came near. Sometimes there are particular differences that tend to define how we relate to one another. I'm not saying they should. I'm simply acknowledging they sometimes do. Whether or not someone is old or young, whether or not someone works for us or we work for them, whether or not someone is a member of the upper class or lower class. When we encounter those differences, we tend to obstruct and experience man-made barriers to deeper relationship. And then something happens that transforms the relationship, that, that moves it beyond those barriers. Let, let me explain. If, if you meet the ladies in my family, eventually you're going to find out many of them love literature and shows rooted in British culture. Think Downton Abbey. Pride, yeah, I see a lot of head nods. Pride and Prejudice, Withering Heights. They are drawn to the drama and the romance. In many shows, there is global conflict and family struggles. And there is this picture of the distinction between socioeconomic classes. How that distinction often produces barriers to how people relate to one another. And then something happens to transform that relationship. Now normally I, I don't get into these shows, but there, there's one we've been engaging as a family. All Creatures Great and Small is a recent masterpiece theater production portraying the story of individuals that are connected to a veterinary practice just prior to, to World War II in rural England. If you're familiar with that title, it is based on a series of children's books that was made into a, a series in the 70s. Some of, some of you who are older may have watched that version. This version is much better. Well, in the final episode of season two, one of the, the repeat characters, a wealthy widow named Mrs. Pumphrey has a little pampered dog named Tricky Woo 
that gets sick. One of the vets arrives at Mrs. Pumphrey's enormous mansion on Christmas Day and finds it empty and depressing. So the individuals in the veterinary practice, they decide to bring a Christmas feast to her. In this celebration, we see a woman of wealth, how someone of high status can relate and connect and be friends with people with far less. That celebration is a game changer. Class distinction does not need to be a barrier for these individuals to relate to one another as friends. The incarnation was a game changer. God came to dwell with sinners like you and I. God with us. Not God above us. Not God over there. Not God kind of close. God with us. If we do not believe God is capable of supernatural things, it will be impossible for us to affirm Jesus is God with us. Jesus may be one of us. He may be another human being, but he will not be God with us. He is not a high and heavenly Lord who came down to dwell in low places. The creed affirms that Jesus was both fully divine and fully human. You may have heard people make the point, Jesus was not 50% God and 50% man. Jesus did not put on a costume of humanity. Jesus wasn't just God. Jesus wasn't just man. Jesus wasn't partially God or partially man. He was both fully God and fully man. Earlier I said the creed communicates it is critical to view what Jesus did, his works, his suffering and being crucified, which we'll reflect on next week in light of who he is. To understand how we relate to his works, we must first understand this fullness of who he is as a person. If you take away one of those from the person of Christ, if Jesus was not fully divine or not fully human, when you take one of those away, you're left with something other than the gospel. It's insufficient. You're saying salvation is found in something other than Christ. So let's explore those implications. Let's first take away the divinity. Many faith traditions will reflect the person of Jesus Christ, but they do not view him as divine. They do not view him as Lord. They do not believe he was fully God. Liberal forms of Christianity, in recognizing that Scripture contradicted naturalism, compromised the doctrine of Jesus' divinity, but still held him up as a good person. Jesus was a good teacher. Jesus' life and death provided spiritual examples of the way humans are to live. Muslims view Jesus as a prophet and even one of the greatest prophets, second only to perhaps Muhammad. Hindus view Jesus as a good teacher. Mormons would claim to believe Jesus is the Son of God, but they would also say he is one son among many. He was not God's son sent into the world as a man. He was a man who became God's son through his efforts and his life. If Jesus was not 
divine. If he is reduced to the status of a good teacher or a good example or someone who has to attain status, he is something different than God with us. Who is Jesus? If you take out his divinity, that he was God in the flesh, rather than a savior, Jesus is someone to imitate. His sacrificial death is reduced to a model for how we are to sacrifice for others. His suffering is reduced to us showing how we are to endure suffering for the sake of righteousness. If Jesus was not divine, his works have no power to save us. His works simply provide an example to follow to gain the good life. The good life is not a gift. As Christians, we do imitate Christ. We do obey Christ. We do submit to his teachings, but not to gain a good life. The good life is not rooted in our obedience. The good life is a gift. When the source of the good life is imitating Christ, what saves us is self. My efforts, my decisions. I am the person responsible for my salvation. I don't need a savior. I am my savior. Rather than you being your own savior, you have a Lord who came down from the heavens for you. You have a Lord who came down to be present with you. That's good news. And being God with us, far more than an example to follow, far more than teaching us to, to have a righteous and holy life, Jesus is something we cannot be. God in the flesh. Savior of the world. Who is Jesus? The high and heavenly Lord. The only Son of God who came down low to save his people. So the first error some make when confronted with the incarnation is to affirm Christ's humanity but reject his divinity, leaving us with a gospel focused on good works. The second option, to reject the humanity of Jesus while affirming his divinity, it leaves us with something inhumane. A God who remains distant and does not extend compassion or mercy to redeem sinners like you and I. So people who denied the humanity of Jesus soon after he lived embraced something called docetism. This was a belief that Christ was only a spirit. He didn't actually take on flesh because human flesh is irredeemable. Human bodies are, are something we need to be set free from. So rather than a high and heavenly Lord who came down low to, to low places, this Lord only appeared to come down. This Lord remained distant and removed. Jesus really existed, but only as a spirit. He didn't really eat, he didn't really breathe, he didn't really leave footprints, he didn't really die, he only seemed to do these things. Such a being might be God, but he wouldn't be God with us. He wouldn't experience the suffering of humanity. He, wouldn't, he, he would remain distant from our struggles. He wouldn't identify with our significant sadness. He would be something cold and impersonal. Such a being would not be God with us. 
Who is Jesus? Why does it matter that he was human? So every, every human has been corrupted by sin. It's not only that we sin, but because we are the sons and daughters of Adam, our humanity is affected. We were created to image God. We, we looked at this a few weeks ago. But as sons of Adam, we all fall short. So for humanity to be redeemed, there needed to be a human. Someone who lived the perfect life to redeem humanity, to rescue it, to resist temptation, to defeat death. Jesus was that human being. This is why scripture calls him the second Adam. Here's Michael Reeves again. In Eden, we turned away from God and trusted the serpent. We became anything but like him. Selfish, faithless, attentive to Satan, but not God. It is as if humankind was a portrait of Christ, drawn in his likeness, now horribly defaced by sin. But then Christ returns to have his portrait redrawn and renewed, not to commission an entirely new piece of work, but to renovate that original. The image of God would come to show us what it means to be the image of God and to remold us into what we were created to be. When you and I were born, we were born into a humanity that is infected and affected by sin. We bear the, the scars and the marks of that humanity. Guilt, sorrow, sadness, suffering. Babies born into the world bearing those marks and those scars. Because of Christ, when we are united with him, we are reborn into a humanity that has been redeemed and is being restored. Adam made all humanity guilty. To undo the fall, to restore humanity, the Savior needed to be human. He needed to be born of a woman. He needed to be God in the flesh, God with us. Jesus could, could not usher in a renewed humanity if he was not born in the flesh. When we dismiss or doubt the humanity of Christ, how he is God with us, we feel he is distant and impersonal. We, we may feel abandoned or alone. We may feel he lacks compassion for the worst of sinners. And we may extend that lack of compassion to others. One of the groups of people when Jesus lived who struggled to understand the good news of a heavenly Lord coming down to dwell in low places was the Pharisees. Rather than God coming down, they believed their behaviors and their actions would lead them to go up, to approach this heavenly Lord. So, so one of the Pharisees, one of the phrases the Pharisees used to describe Jesus was friend of sinners. And this was not intended as a compliment. It was an accusation. If Jesus was such a high and holy and heavenly person, he wouldn't associate with lowly sinners. They're irredeemable. A holy God would not have friends in such 
low places. The Pharisees didn't understand the good news of a heavenly Lord who came down to be friends with sinners. And sometimes the way we interact with sinners reflects such a belief. There are sinners we view as so dirty and so defiled, we stay away. They're irredeemable. Such behavior betrays the good news of the gospel. A verse many of you are familiar with, For God so loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Who is Jesus? When we affirm Jesus is fully human and fully divine, we understand how he is truly our Savior. We understand how he came into the world to rescue sinners like us, and he didn't just save us, he befriended us. Understanding this reality should produce great joy. But some of us are a little apathetic when it comes to this friendship. We struggle to see how crazy this friendship is. Maybe we think Jesus is our friend because we deserve his friendship. Like the Pharisees, we do not see the depth of our depravity. Or maybe we think God came down to befriend sinners like you and I because, like Mrs. Pumphrey, he was lonely. He needed our friendship. Jesus didn't need to be your friend. When we embrace a disposition that God needs us, Jesus needs our friendship. We are entitled to this friendship. It produces a bit of a nonchalant attitude. We do not rejoice. We do not appreciate the depth of what it means. There is a high and heavenly Lord who came down to be friends with people like you and I in low places. So who is Jesus? If you're with us this morning and you're not yet a Christian, I've said Christians believe in something incredible. We believe in something supernatural. Jesus was God with us. And I don't want you to think this means Christians are opposed to doing research, that we are anti-evidence or anti-thinking or anti-archaeology. We don't reject using our minds. We trust such disciplines will support truth. As we taught our kids in vacation Bible school a couple weeks ago, okay, if you know it, say it with me, seek truth, good job, good job, we believe in something extraordinary because of the testimony of ordinary people recorded in scripture, we believe that testimony because of how the word of God has been preserved, so I encourage you, do your research, read the scriptures, find someone to process with, Engage with the testimony of others who experience similar doubts and concerns. There are so many good resources out there. Wrestling out how you answer the question, who is Jesus, is the most important question of your life. For the Christians in the room, contemplating this question, who is Jesus, it should lead us to experience a sense of awe and reverence Jesus is a high and heavenly Lord, and Jesus is a human friend of sinners. Reducing him to one or the other will result in deficiencies in how we live, but affirming Christ as both will result in rejoicing and obedience. So the Apostle Paul, in describing 
Jesus as God's son and using the title Christ, even how he was a descendant of David, is describing this person of high position. The, the creed affirming Jesus with the language Christ, God's son, our Lord, conceived by the Holy Spirit, is doing the same. The, the creed is leading us to express awe, awe about who Christ is, but it also leads us to experience rich joy and gratitude. The incarnation was a game changer. This high and heavenly Lord did not stay dwelling in the heavens. He did not remain impersonal and inaccessible, but instead he came down to his people. And he didn't just come to be your friend, he came to save his friends, to lay down his life for his friends. That's good news. To hear more about that, come back next week. For now, let's pray.